1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. Uh, And this uh, is the middle of a paragraph or even a sentence. Uh, and, And so... Uh, we add the words I will in like manner also I will that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety now Paul in this passage is dealing with the role of women in the church and his words being part of holy scripture are words which hold authority for all time. Uh, Many would argue, even in the churches today, that a passage such as 1 Timothy chapter 2 was merely addressing the culture of Paul's day and therefore is not applicable to our own time. Uh, And Uh, with regards to the secular world uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 would indeed cause many to rise up in great anger Uh, but uh, we as Bible believing Christians love the whole word of God and we acknowledge that it has an eternal authority Now the type of language used here immediately conveys to us that whatever the role of women in the church might be, it is certainly not that of a high profile exercising of leadership and authority. The ordination of women and now the consecration of bishops is seen by the national church as a matter of enlightened progressiveness overcoming the entrenched prejudice of the past. The reality, however, is that the Church of England, uh, the Methodist Church uh, and other non-conformist churches have tragically abandoned the basic Protestant principle that only scripture should determine doctrine and practice. In the media generally, uh, whenever the uh, issue of women's ordination arises, uh, those who are opposed to it are rather strangely described as traditionalists. Now this is very misleading because it suggests that the issue is one of modernity against stubborn, backward-looking conservatism. But that is not the issue at all. The issue is, what does the Word of God say? And that is the only issue. The word of God forbids leadership, authority and teaching roles to women in the church. 
Now, we must never be allured into accepting an open rebellion against God's created order, even though the spirit of our age demands it. The modern feminist movement is essentially an anti-Christian movement. It is an attack upon God's created order. And and yet most of society, uh, including the politicians and including the churches, have succumbed to militant feminism. Now, we must never be tempted to regard women's ordination as a matter of secondary importance. Nor must we ever be lulled into condoning this sinful practice on the grounds that it is now so common and all those women vicars are such nice people anyway. Human wisdom must never be elevated above the word of God. Now in this verse 9, before dealing with the issue of teaching roles, uh, Paul speaks of the manner of dress of women. Now, he raises this subject, obviously because it was an issue in his own day. But, this is the inspired word of God, so there are also principles here for every age. So he says in this verse 9, In like manner also I will that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Now, the word modest here, in the original Greek, applying to dress, uh, literally means orderly and well arranged. The word shamefacedness uh, is, in the original language, literally a sense of shame. And so its meaning here in this context is that women should dress with a proper reserve, with due restraint, fearing ever to be in a position of shame. Now, it was evidently a very real problem in Ephesian society, which Paul is addressing as he sends this letter to Timothy, that women were dressing immodestly. And there was even the issue of some attempting to do so whilst engaging in Christian worship. Therefore, Paul, with God-ordained apostolic authority, decrees that women adorn themselves in modest, orderly, well-arranged apparel. Now, we have a real problem in our society today with the lack uh, of any sense of shame amongst many girls and women with regard to dress. This is a real problem in the world. 
And so it is important that Bible-believing Christians uh, make a stand on this issue, not with any harsh judgmentalism, but we must uphold biblical principles, because no one else is going to do so if we do not do so. Now, it is a common sight, uh, even round here, to see young schoolgirls coming to and from school dressed in a way which is singularly inappropriate, even though they are in uniform. So there is a very practical example from our own situation of uh, the need to set forth uh, to our society biblical principles about dress. It, It is an important issue. And we suspect that the school authorities are scared stiff of doing this. They're probably afraid of being called male chauvinists or something like that. Paul says here then that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Now, he's not saying that a woman should be unconcerned about her appearance. He's not even saying that a woman should not try to look her best. In fact, he is saying the opposite of that. He is saying that the woman's appearance should be well-ordered, which suggests taking care and attention. But at the same time, the appearance must be with modesty and restraint, and not to deliberately draw attention, or worse still, to arouse. And that latter issue, of course, is the big problem today. Paul's primary point is that inward beauty, practical holiness, and a holy demeanour are far more important than outward adornment. So it is important how we look on the outside, and it is right to pay attention to that, but even more important is inward beauty. Uh, And so we have similar teaching is in 1 Peter 3 and verse 3. 1 Peter 3 verse 3. Um, Again, speaking of women, Peter says, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and the wearing of gold or a putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So there in 1 Peter 3, that we see that his emphasis is on inward holiness rather than outward show and assertiveness. He's not arguing, pay no attention to how you look, because, because that would not... Uh, be God honouring but he is saying that the crucial issue is the inward holiness and so this is an important biblical principle Uh, and here in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9 Paul goes on not with broided hair or gold or pearls 
or costly array, then verse 10, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Braiding of the hair and the wearing of jewellery are not forbidden here. Uh, But what is forbidden is the excessive use of such things and the relying on them for ostentatious display. Such external adornments can never make a woman truly beautiful. Now, it was the fashion in Paul's day to interweave the strands of hair with costly jewels among some women. And of course, the motivation behind this was brash exhibitionism. The Christian woman, in contrast, must avoid such vanity, says Paul. She must adorn herself with practical obedience to God's commandments. Now, an example of this holy adornment is to be found in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36. Acts 9 verse 36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And then verse 39. All the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. So Dorcas is a a very fine example um, of what Paul means here in 1 Timothy 2 and verses 9 and 10. She, She was a truly beautiful woman and her beauty was manifested in her practical holiness and usefulness of life. In Proverbs 31 and verse 10, we read, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil, that is, additional provisions. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. And so there the word of God is upholding the the female virtue of practical diligence, particularly within the domestic situation. Now, One can imagine the feminists getting really, really angry at this. Uh, But we must not allow our our thinking to be undermined by what the world does. Uh, And in saying these things, the word of God is not teaching that women should not become doctors or members of parliament. Uh, And we know that there are many gifted women in, in such areas. But what makes a woman truly beautiful is her practical inward adornment. 
which has the result of this diligence in doing good. And then uh, in verse 11 here, Paul goes on, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, in silence here means with a quietness of demeanour, with a tranquillity which is accepting. It does not mean an absolute silence, but it means a silence with respect to an acceptance of God-ordained male headship. Now, a woman, of course, can sing God's praises in the assembly of the saints. She can declare her agreement to the public prayers led by the minister, by her hearty amens. And the woman may also pray in the church's prayer meetings because, and this is the important thing, they are under male supervision. It would not be right for a lady to lead the church's prayer meeting. Uh, But for a woman to pray in the prayer meeting is not an act of leading worship. It is not an act of authority over a man but it is simply a humble and submissive pouring out of the heart before the Lord. It is done in the presence of male leadership to which the godly woman defers. Uh, But the key um, in this verse 11 is that phrase, with all subjection. The woman must not do anything which counteracts God-ordained male authority. And so, as we have said, she may never lead the congregation in prayer. Uh, But we know from 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5 that the woman may pray and even proclaim God's word to others in situations where male headship is not compromised. For example, when teaching children or when teaching other women. Uh, Paul also teaches that when the woman prays, she should do so mindful of outward symbols of the divinely instituted male headship. So, for a woman to be a preacher and a leader is expressly forbidden by the word of God because it is incompatible with the meek and quiet spirit which must characterise the Christian woman. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, Paul says this, and again, just notice how this is so contrary to the spirit of our own Age. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. The head of the woman 
is the man. Well, there is nothing like a statement such as that to raise the ire of so many in our contemporary society. Uh, But of course, what the world does not understand is that the headship of man over the woman is a loving headship and a very sacrificial headship. And notice that a loving male headship is actually built into the very warp and woof of man's creation. It is not insignificant that the man was formed first of all when God created the world. The man was formed first. And then the woman as his helper. Now, it of course goes without saying that women have a most vital and indispensable role to play in society, the family and the church. Nor is it a secondary role. It is an absolutely essential role. And women have special qualities which men do not have. And if only political correctness would face up to this, men and women are different. They're not the same. In God's wisdom, he has made us different. And it's a glorious difference. It's not a difference to be ashamed of. And of course women are perfectly equal with men. In terms of receiving salvation and entering into Christ's kingdom. But what women are not called to do is to exercise authority and leadership over men. It is the calling of men to be real men. To take responsibility and to exercise a loving headship over the woman. I wonder how many feminists out there secretly want the protection and security which a strong man would give them. Now, in specific relationship to leadership in the church, the apostolic command, the word of God states, I suffer not a woman to teach. Whatever happens to be the fashion in secular society is completely irrelevant to this divinely ordained principle. Not only is preaching and leadership in the church denied to women, it is also denied to most men. Because only those specifically called to do so, only those men specifically called, may take on the role of pastor, elder, minister, presbyter, whichever term we wish to use. Now, many churches forget this, allowing others to take services and lead worship who have no calling or authority to do so. 
Oh, the young people's group is going to take the service next Sunday. That's not biblical. Now, most men, as we said, are not called into the Christian ministry. A man can be a Christian, authoritative, well-educated, eloquent, but still not be called into the ministry. The Bible, as we've read this morning, also forbids those who are novices in the faith from leading worship and teaching others. Now, as we have said, women do have a very important role as teachers in the church, amongst other women and towards the children. They may also, under male leadership, engage in personal witnessing to men. And it's a, it's a great joy to pastors when we preach in the open air that there are these faithful Christian women who, under the male leadership, are entitled to engage in a personal one-to-one witnessing about their faith. But the calling of women is not to a formal leadership or teaching role within Christ's church. Having said that, uh, we must not think in terms of, oh, the women are demoted or in any way like that. What a high calling it is to be the teacher of children. What, what is more important? Especially in the home. Now, the recipient of this letter, Timothy, greatly benefited in his home from the godly influence of both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And we know that Timothy was exposed to the timeless truth of scripture uh, from a very early age and he was converted uh, when still very young and uh, and what an enormous influence those godly women, his mother and his grandmother would have had on Timothy and and we can think likewise of uh, John and Charles Wesley who 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 were homeschooled by their mother Susanna and, and uh, they were into New Testament Greek when they were just four and five. You know, that, that, what a wonderful upbringing they had. It was quite strict. But they were brought up in the things of God. What a blessing to have uh, a mother teaching them in that way. And uh, whatever uh, the woman's age, there, there is a vital task to play. Now, Titus 2 and verse 3, Titus 2 verse 3, speaks of uh, the older women. The aged women should be in behaviour, says Paul, as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And so there we have more wise counsel, and we learn that older women have particular gifts in helping the younger women 
in the paths of holiness. Let us go back to 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, if we deny, or if society denies the headship of the man over the woman, then they must, to be consistent, also deny the headship of Christ overall. Because the two go together, they're put together in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. So you might as well just deny the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ as deny the headship of the man over the woman. This is not a social construct. This is the word of God. You see, here in verse 13, Paul gives us a theological reason for the headship of the man. Not a social reason, not a reason based on first century prejudice. Oh, those ancient patriarchal societies, how prejudiced they were. No, Paul gives a theological reason and he goes back to the creation. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. That was God's providential order so this verse is the answer to all those who say that Paul's teachings on the role of women was merely reflecting the prejudices of his contemporary culture we are in fact told here the reason for his prohibition upon women leading worship and teaching The reasons he states are not cultural, but theological. And they go back to the very beginning of time. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now that is God's created order. We cannot change that. Woman came from man. Paul goes on. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The modern Western world thinks it knows better than the eternal word of God. Now in terms of status before the Holy God and the value of each soul, men and women are perfectly equal. But in terms of God-ordained role, there is a headship granted to the man which is demonstrated by the very fact that the man was created first. Whilst the woman was created To be the man's helper. One commentator puts it like this. Adam existed for some time before Eve 
was formed. God could have created both at the same time, but he did not do that. God deliberately chose this order. The man was created first and the woman was created for the man. In an army, you have a commander and you have privates. Now, they both have vital roles to play. They're both equal in the sight of God. But they have distinctive roles. And so God deliberately chose this order in respect of male and female. Now, this fact alone, uh, and this is just incidentally, but this makes any synthesis between the Bible and evolutionary theory impossible. Because under evolution, uh, there presumably has to be a concurrence of male and female genetic information for species to replicate and evolve. And so evolution, in fact, attacks this fundamental order that God has put in of male and female. And then Paul, in verse 14, carries on with another theological reason. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. It was Eve who succumbed to Satan's wiles and who then challenged Adam's headship role. Now, Adam's sin was to allow himself to be led astray by Eve's very subtle arguments, rather than asserting his male authority. Adam took Eve's Satan-inspired advice, and disaster ensued. Genesis 3, verse 4, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and did eat, doubtless commending the value of so doing. And Adam abandoned his male headship and gave in to what his wife was counselling. And so Paul is giving us here a theological reason why male headship should be honoured. But it's interesting. Eve was the one who was deceived. She was the one who first sinned. But who takes the responsibility? the man it's in Adam all die not in Eve in Adam all die and so here we begin to see that male headship 
has real responsibility and it's costly. Adam is seen as the representative sinner of the race because he represents initially his wife and then the rest of mankind. It is in Adam that all die. Now Paul goes on concerning the woman in verse 15. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And so there Paul is teaching us uh, regarding the mutual situations of the man and the woman. The man who's cursed for his transgression in the garden, uh, his curse was to be reflected in his daily toil and in the sweat of his brow. God's curse upon the woman was to be reflected in the pain she would suffer in giving birth. And so both the man and the woman suffer under the curse in different ways. Yet the terms of the woman's salvation are exactly the same as that of the man's. She, like the man, will know the blessings of eternal salvation through faith in Christ. She will know this in her special role of bearing and rearing up children. As she believes in the Saviour and continues in the faith and showing the reality of it by her obedience. What Paul is teaching us here, and this is where all the wise men of this world really stumble, is that men and women are different. And they have different roles. They have an absolute equality, of course, above all in respect of salvation. But God has made men and women different. We have learned that the women must adorn themselves with modesty of dress and with a meek and quiet spirit. There is in God's created order a male headship. But that male headship is actually for the benefit of the woman. It's not something she should fear. It's for her benefit. We have learned that the woman must must not take to herself any leadership or teaching roles in the church. That is contrary to God's created order. There was a male headship before the fall, which was confirmed and reinforced after the fall. It was Eve who sinned first. There is a perfect equality in the means of salvation. Both male and female believers will enjoy the joint inheritance of heavenly glory. And so in Christ, in that sense, there is neither male nor female. But the word of God says that women may not exercise authority nor teach men in Christ's church. But what vital supporting roles they have. Possessing rich gifts and qualities not granted to men. And Paul himself 
praised God for the holy women who helped him in his gospel work. We see that, for example, at the end of Romans. Now, when God's created order, in conclusion, when God's created order with regard to the two sexes is properly honoured, there actually results a beautiful harmony. What we are learning here is so positive and so beneficial. We have a harmony whereby the woman complements the man and the man complements the woman and both are far better off as a result. Let us completely forget atheistic feminism. Let us forget all the secularist mantras about equality. It is the honouring of God's created order that is the important thing. We must recognise his ordained gender distinctions. And in doing so, both men and women will find their true fulfilment. So on this important issue, as all other issues, we must go to the scriptures and not to the ideas of a secular, God-rejecting society. Amen.